Okay, we're going to gather back together and get started. Okay, as we mentioned, we are taking these four weeks of Advent to focus on Christmas. Today, we're going to look at the prophecies of Christ's first coming, looking at Isaiah 7, 14 and Isaiah chapters 9, verses 6 and 7. If you'd like to turn there with us as we get started this morning. We've already read those a couple of times, but let's read verse 14 of chapter 7 as we get into the word this morning. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Lord, we honor you by the reading of your word, and we ask that you would visit with us and speak with us this morning. Lord, may we take all the stuff from our week and the holiday and family and uh, even Black Friday, if we, we went and did that, Lord, and we just lay all that stuff aside this morning in honor of you, and we ask you to minister to us. Lord, as we talk about hope, prophecy is about hope. And Lord, we need hope. It's so easy for us to get focused on our circumstances on the events of life around us, and to lose faith, to lose focus, to lose hope on who you are, on what you have said, on what your word speaks to us. And so, Lord, this morning, may you renew that within us as we focus on these two specific prophecies of the coming of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting as we look at these two prophecies, these two prophecies really paved the way for the event that we call Christmas, keeping in mind, of course, that the thing with the Christmas tree and the gifts and all that, that's pretty non-biblical. Um, but, of course, we have this time of the year to focus on the Lord, and I pray that as we take extra time this year to focus on these, these four Sundays, looking at the birth of Christ, looking at what it means to us, that we will all take time over these next four weeks or so to really focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and to not get caught or lost in the holiday shuffle. So this verse here that was spoken within a context by the prophet Isaiah uh, to the nation of Judah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. As is so often the case in Old Testament prophecy, it has a near and a far fulfillment. This had a near fulfillment during that time, uh, during King Ahaz's time. Uh, there was a lady who was a virgin who did have a son, and they did name his name Emmanuel. And that was given, if you go back and you read the full prophecy in chapter 7, as a sign that God would keep his word, that God was faithful and true, that God knew the beginning from the end, and that God was, was sovereignly in control of all circumstances of life, and that God had the control over kings, over governments. And if God could speak such a thing and cause such a thing to happen, that God could send them into exile, as he later, of course, would do through the Babylonian exile. 
But this also, like so many messianic prophecies, had a dualistic meaning. It had a near and a far fulfillment. So in addition to being fulfilled in the day of Isaiah and the day of King Ahaz, it has a fulfillment for us. And of course, we know around 1900 or so years ago that there in the manger in Bethlehem was born to us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. But here it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. So 700 years before Jesus was born, these words were spoken. And when we consider the possibility, or probably better stated, the impossibility of a virgin conceiving and having a baby, that's pretty amazing. And the implication here, by using the word uh, that's used for virgin, it speaks of a woman, a maiden, who was living with her parents, who had never been with a man, who, whose marriage was not coming up, and it was one who was mature enough to be married and ready for marriage. And in every case where this word is used in the Old Testament, it speaks of a virgin, a lady who was indeed a virgin as we understand the word. Not so much today in our society, right? Every woman wants to wear a white dress, but so many ladies have not kept themselves chaste and pure for the day of their wedding, the day of their betrothal. But here, this speaks of a woman who was indeed a virgin. And so for the Lord to do such a thing, we, we have to understand, is a miracle, God worked a miracle, not just to prove a point to a king many, many years ago, but to prove to us that he is faithful and true, that he is all-powerful. In fact, it's interesting, if we look just in the book of Isaiah and no further, there are some 22 or so prophecies specifically focusing on the Messiah, in Isaiah 49.1, we are told that Jesus would be called before his birth to be God's servant. We are told here in Isaiah 7.14 that he would be born of a virgin. We are told in Isaiah 11, <clears throat> excuse me, that he will be a descendant of Jesse and thus in the Davidic line, fulfilling God's prophecy that the Messiah would come out of David's loins. We are told again in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42 that he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know that Jesus on the day of his baptism by the prophet John, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. We are told in Isaiah 42 again that he would be gentle toward the weak, and that he would be compassionate. We are told in Isaiah 50 that he would be obedient to the Lord in his mission always obeying his Father. We are told in Isaiah 50 and 53 that he would voluntarily submit himself to suffering. We are told in multiple passage, passages in Isaiah that he would be rejected by Israel, his own people. And again in Isaiah 53 that he would take on himself the sins of the world and that he would triumph over death, and that he would be exalted above death, and that he will come to comfort, in Isaiah 61, Israel, and to bring vengeance on the wicked. We have just talked about that in the book of Revelation as we completed that study, that Jesus would come back 
to comfort and to bring vengeance on behalf of Israel. In Isaiah 49.3, Jesus would manifest God's glory. Certainly he did that. He will restore Israel spiritually to God and physically to the land. And he again will do that during the time of the end. He will reign on David's throne. He will bring joy to Israel and he will make a new covenant with Israel in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. He will be a light to the Gentiles. He will restore the nations. He will be worshipped by the Gentiles. He will govern the world. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And he will judge in righteousness, justice, and faithfulness. And this is just Isaiah. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking that he would be born of a virgin and he would come forth And the sign would be not only that he would be born of a virgin, but that his name would specifically be named Emmanuel, God with us. And so what a prophecy for us. And a reminder, as was read today in the reading, that prophecy speaks to us about hope. That God will always fulfill his word. And I think this is why it's so important for us to read the Bible, and not just read the parts that we like or that we find comfortable or that are are our favorite parts, but to read the Old Testament, to read the whole counsel of God. And as we read, uh, you know, perhaps the first time through, sometimes we don't understand. It's that way with our studies, right? When we're doing academic studies, often we read material and we don't understand it the first time. We have to read it a second time and a third time. And so it is with the Word of God as well. But as we do that, God reveals Himself to us in these prophecies that we read in the Old Testament that sometimes don't make sense to us. When we keep reading and we keep persevering and we get through to the New Testament, we come to a time where we read it and we say, ah, that's what that means. And sometimes, of course, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And in most of our modern translations, it'll either be in quotations or in capital letters when it's quoting from the Old Testament. But sometimes there there are these sort of hidden references that maybe it's not quoted directly, but the concept is quoted. And what I've gotten in the habit of doing in my Bible is I write it down, I circle it, or I make a note, and I say, I think that was mentioned back here, and I'll make my own cross-reference. You know, sometimes your Bible has a a center column cross-reference in it, and I do that because I get excited when the dots get connected for me. I'm really a simple person. So when God connects a dot, I like, I want to write that down. And so prophecy is connecting the dots for us. And it communicates to us not only hope, but it communicates to us the faithfulness of God. Turning over just a couple of pages in your Bible from Isaiah 7 to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 Uh, This prophecy uh, continues with the, the child Jesus, and it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When we have children, when our babies are born, Do any of us speak of our children as being born for the greater good of the world? 
Not usually, right? We speak of our children as, oh, we're so excited we had a kid. But notice it says here in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto whom? Us. The birth of this child, the messianic child, Jesus, was for all people. So even there, there is an allusion, there is a reference, there is a foreshadowing to the redemptive work that Jesus would one day do on the cross. For unto us a child is born. How many people can look at your children and say, your child was born for me? Maybe family, maybe grandparents as we dote over our grandkids, but not from the sense of the world. I mean, that would be weird, right? We would be a little suspicious if somebody came up to us on the street and we're rolling our baby down the street in a stroller saying, oh, there's my baby. That would freak us out a little bit. We'd call the cops. But here, this is telling us, for unto us a child is born. And when we read this, when we see this, when we think of Jesus, the first thing that ought to come into our minds and our hearts as a believer is, he came for me. For my benefit, he came for me. He wanted to redeem me. He wanted to present me to the Father. For unto us a child is born. Jesus was born into this world for me, for you. There was a purpose to his birth. And notice it says, unto us a son is given. So he was born for us, but he he was also given to us. God's heart, God's plan revealed here in just this first few words of of Isaiah 9, 6. And the government will be upon his shoulder. I was intrigued as I was looking at this, where it says the government will be upon his shoulder singular. I was looking into that thinking, well, I wonder what that means. Why did it say singular? Why didn't it say shoulders? You know, we often think of someone, you know, maybe carrying a heavy load, maybe a sack of potatoes, throwing it up on their back. And this was actually an Old Testament Hebraic way of referring to uh, putting it sort of right on the back of your neck. And it referred to that as the shoulder, which meant really both shoulders. So there was nothing, no mysterious thing there. But this is speaking of the government resting upon him, the full weight of the government resting upon Jesus Christ. Now, it should be a little odd to us if we stop and just think about this. In one breath, we say a child, a baby is born. Unto us, a son is given. And in the next breath, we say the government will be upon his shoulders. It's like, wait a minute, what happened between birth and he's carrying the weight of the world's government? And yet God is speaking of the very fact that, again, as we've just studied in the book of Revelation, that everything will will pivot and hinge and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The government will be upon his shoulder. And, of course, that is a reference much more to the time of the end than it is right now. But, see, even Paul, the great apostle, alludes to this in two passages in Romans 13 and in another passage in 1 Corinthians where he talks about the fact that we need to submit to the government because the government is put in place by God. That God himself rules and reigns over the affairs of mankind. And yes, even corrupt leaders, even the ones we don't like, God allows to be in office. God orchestrates the affairs of the world that ultimately one day 
the government will certainly be upon the shoulder of Jesus Christ. And we will sit underneath his millennial rule and reign as the king, but then there will be the eternal kingdom that will one day come as we have just studied. And his name will be called these things, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What do these things mean to us, that his name will be called all these things? You know, normally when we think of naming our child, they might have a first and a middle name. Sometimes they don't. They might have multiple names. There are some cultures who give like four names in a row to a child. But here we're told his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Somebody's phone's going off back there. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So as we look up at that this morning, let's look at the different names that are given here to our Lord Jesus Christ. First, his name will be called Wonderful. Miracle, Marvelous Thing. The name of Jesus, miracle, marvelous thing. What a name to be given to a person, that Jesus would be called these things. And certainly when we think of Jesus, really when we think of a name, I don't know if you've seen this in your lives, I've certainly seen this in our lives, when we looked at our kids or when we picked out a name for our kids, you know, we prayed about those things, we, uh, you know, Lord, what should this child be named? And then we give them a name, and then we've had the great privilege of seeing them sort of grow into their name in terms of how they've, they've grown up. You know, for example, uh, we didn't fully understand that when we named our son Alexander, it means great one or one who would aspire to great things. And certainly he's done that through his military career and all that, and we've seen uh, what he's done in life and how he's cared for people. And he's even in a profession now where he's caring for and helping people. Our daughter, Rachel, Rachel means you or little lamb, and she is certainly the most sensitive of our children. She's certainly grown into that name. Uh, the name Rebecca means weary, and we didn't know what that would fully mean when she would be born. And then, of course, the name Gabriella comes from the name Gabriel, which is the name for an angel, and it just speaks of someone who would have a heart for God. And so... These things, that you know, there is meaning in a name. But here, Jesus' name, wonderful, miracle, marvelous thing. And certainly it speaks to the character of Jesus, does it not? His birth was a miracle. He worked miracles on the face of planet Earth. No one has ever worked miracles like the person of Jesus. And then the word counselor, or the name counselor, and of course, we know what the word counselor or to, or to counsel means. It means to advise, to consult, to deliberate, you know, to instruct others. And it's interesting how Jesus uh, was called the, the mighty God, the counselor. And it's interesting here in um, one of the people who wrote about his name being counselor said this about uh, counseling. Worldly counsel is man counseling man with man's wisdom and insight. Godly biblical counsel is God counseling man with God's wisdom and God's insight. Who has greater insight into my heart and life? The one who created me, my God, or a man who is at best my equal? 
speaking to the fact that when we need counsel, and by the way, we shouldn't be ashamed to admit that, right? I need counsel every day. I need counsel every day from God's Word. I may think I know something. I may think of myself as a, an expert in some area, but ultimately it means nothing in the light of who God is. Listen to some of these things that speak about the counsel of God. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 29, excuse me, Isaiah 28. Who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance? Judges chapter 20. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him, seeking the counsel of God. Job chapter 12, with him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. Psalm 16, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And we could go on with many more scriptures that speak to the fact that God is the one who provides counsel. Listen to this one in Proverbs 21. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. So when you hear someone speak against the Lord, or worse, someone trying to give you advice that goes against the counsel of God's word, we are to immediately reject that. Why? Because his name, the name of Jesus, is called Counselor. He is the one who provides us the counsel that we need. In fact, I think it would be wise of us to remember that when we need counsel in anything, the first place we should go, not the second, the third, the fourth, or the fifth, but the first place we should go should be to the Word of God. It should be to our knees in prayer saying, God, I need counsel. Lord, direct my paths in these things that are facing me. Remember, even in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, in his letters to the seven churches, he said this in Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus, even counseling the church here, stop looking in other places, come to me for your counsel. Spurgeon, whom we all love to quote, said this, Oh, that I were in trouble every day. If I might have such sweet counsel as this, Christ is the counselor whom I desire to consult every hour, and I would that I could sit in his secret chamber all day and all night long, because to counsel with him is to have sweet counsel, hearty counsel, wise counsel, all at the same time. Who could say it better than that? As we continue, his name shall be called 
mighty God, meaning the limits of his power are not known. We start with the book of Genesis and we think of creation. How much more powerful can someone be than to speak words and the worlds are formed into existence out of nothingness, ex nihilo, out of nothingness. God speaks and something is created. Think about the judgment of God at the flood of Noah, where he warned people over and over, Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And then finally, the day came when Noah walked into that ark, that boat that he had built for uh, what we believe to be about 100 years. And as he walked into that boat, God himself closed the gate, sealed it up, and brought judgment on the world simply by his word. What about delivering the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh? What about defeating the prophets of Baal through the, the person of Elijah? And on and on it goes. Here's the question. Is God big enough to take care of that which concerns me? Can he take care of that which concerns you? Is he mighty enough? Is he powerful enough? You see, we so often judge strength by the people or the things that we see around us. And we look at a machine, we say, well, a machine is stronger than me, or we go to the gym and there's always someone stronger than, than me. But there's no one stronger than God. There's no one more mighty, more noble, more wise than God. He is the Almighty. In Jesus' name would be called Mighty God. This is the one in whom we have placed our faith and our trust and our hope. It's said that he would be called Everlasting Father. Probably a better translation would be to describe him as uh, the Eternal One. The eternal nature of God without beginning, without end. We, of course, know Jesus is co-equal with the Father. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Everlasting Father. You know, we have a beginning and an end, don't we? With every day that passes, we get a little older. When one day we wake up and we have a physical problem, a physical ailment, Sometimes they, they come and they go, and other times they never leave. But with God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the everlasting Father. His name is hidden there in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, Let us make man in our image. Jesus has been there since the beginning of time. The book of Colossians tells us this. And then we are told finally here in Isaiah 9, 6, that he is the prince of peace. The word prince is not the name of a rock star. The name prince is a title given to one who would be in line to assume the throne of the king. And yet he is called not just a prince, but the prince of peace. And if there's one thing that sin has done... Among the many things that sin has done, it has been to rob us of our peace, of peace with God and of peace with our fellow man. I mean, think about your life for the last seven days. How much lack of peace have you experienced because of various things? We just had a family holiday. 
Maybe some of us experienced a lack of peace because of family squabbles, because of difficulties over the food or how it was served or it was too cold or why didn't you get this and why didn't you make that? Our peace is robbed. Our joy is taken away. Yet Jesus himself is named the Prince of Peace. The word prince means leader or captain or head. Jesus, of course, spoke these words in John 14. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then in John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Then finally in Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. These five names given to Jesus, do you know the number five is the number of grace? These five things, that the, the, these names that are given to our Lord Jesus Christ as he was born are names that summarize to us who he would be, what he would be like. And Jesus is indeed all of these things, is he not? Whenever, in short, it appears to us that everything is in a ruinous condition, let us recall to our remembrance that Christ is called wonderful because he has inconceivable methods of assisting us and because his power is far beyond what we are able to conceive. When we need counsel, let us remember that he is the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of which he is with good reason called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distresses. When we are inwardly tossed by various tempests, and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that it is easy for him to quickly allay all of our uneasy feelings. This will, as these titles confirm for us, more and more move us toward faith in Christ and fortify us against Satan and even against hell itself. John Calvin spoke those words of our Lord. And finally, in 9-7 of chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah, it says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, we believe Isaiah 9-7 is speaking specifically of the reign of Christ during the time of the end. And as we, again, just to remind you, as we have studied and completed our study in the book of Revelation, this speaks of that time that was forthcoming that would come after the end of the tribulation. A time when Jesus would restore everything to the way it was meant to be. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will finally be one day a righteous government. There will be a government where there is no news channels. We don't have to watch the news to find out what's going on. We just have to watch Jesus. 
And you know what? I think that's good advice for today. We watch the TV, we watch our news channels to find out what's going on, and we get troubled. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That is the future. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment. I mean, that phrase alone tells us that, that we need a careful study of what it means when we look back at David's kingdom and we look back at how God had ordered David's kingdom. Remember God said of David, this is a man after my own heart. Remember how God looked at David? David was a, the quintessential worshiper. Look at what he gave us. Has anybody written more songs than David? Has anyone ever guided us more toward the throne of God in worship than David? And so we get, we get a glimpse into God's heart that God loves worship. God loves people who are after his own heart. And upon this throne, the throne of David, remember the way we got to the throne uh, where God established thrones, uh, rulers of kings over men, was because men rejected God's rule over them through the priests and the prophets. And they came to the place, they said, give us a king just like the other people have. And God said, okay, and the first king he gave them was a man who in the beginning started out well, King Saul, but ultimately he became a king like any other king. He became a worldly king. And then God said, I'm going to show you what a king who reigns the way I want him to reign looks like through the, the kingship of David. Now, David's kingdom was not perfect, of course, but the spirit and the intent behind it is what he wants us to see. And so upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. Think about what would happen if our actions had real consequences. If any time we drove one-tenth of a mile per hour over the speed limit, we got a ticket. What would happen if any time we spoke a lie, we were instantly judged for that lie? What about if any time we thought in our heart evil of another person, God immediately called that up and said, hey, what was that? What if God called all these things to mind. I think we would have a society, you know, of course, there are some governments in the world that have very harsh societies, but there is great rule of government. But even then, it pales in comparison to what will happen here. He will establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And this will not be a ty tyrannical reign this will be a reign of truth and justice. This will be a reign of peace. This will be a reign of truth where we will desire under the rule and the reign of the king to do the right thing. Not because we're forced to, but because we want to. And notice it finishes here in Isaiah 9-7 by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God himself will bring this about. Now, if we can trust, if we will trust in the fact that one day, as we look forward to the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, to what God will do, 
Do we understand that right now, even though there's sin in the world and even though this world is given over to Satan's reign, do we understand that even now God is in control? God is sovereignly reigning and ruling over us. God has allowed things to be as they are, but he is guiding things in the direction he wants them to go. And the direction he wants them to go is Isaiah 9-7, which is a one-verse summary of the end of the book of Revelation. Do we have the faith to believe that God is in control? As my daughter was getting on the plane yesterday to go back to Italy, they know God's called them every time they leave to go back. They know that that's where God's called them to work. But there are always tears and hugs because we, we long to be together. We love each other. We want to see each other. We, we want to grow up and see, we want to see those grandkids grow up and they want, you know, they want them to know us as their grandparents and all that. And it's always a sad thing. But we know that God has ordered these things. And if it weren't for that hope, if it weren't for the sovereign understanding of who God is, we would be so sad. We'd be sitting crying for days and weeks and months because they're not with us and we're not with them. But because we understand God has a plan and God has ordered these things, we can accept it. Why? Because he is in control. Father knows best. And one day it will all make sense. You know, we, we need to learn to have a heavenly perspective. You know, what goes on in this life is nothing. It pales in comparison. Psalm 90, there's a little verse in there where Moses wrote and he said, you know, God may give us strength for 70 or even possibly 80 years, but he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And he says, then we die and we fly away. What does that mean? We go to be with the Lord in heaven. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the future kingdom that he will establish. And what goes on here and now? Yeah, we're to make the best of it. Yes, we are to proclaim the name of the Lord. Yes, we are to be living epistles. Yes, we are to be salt and light, all of those things. But let us be those things. Let us not miss the opportunity while it is still called today. That when we sin and when we mess up to repent and come back to the Lord and say, Lord, use my life. You see, the problem is we look at our lives and we get discouraged. But you see, God doesn't look at our lives and see a problem that's insurmountable. He sees a person who's not yielded. And when he sees that person who's not yielded, you know what he does? He orchestrates things to bring us to a point of yielding. And if I may use a strong word this morning, he wants to bring us to a point of capitulation. Do you know what that is? You ever seen a couple of dogs when they meet each other? And the alpha dog has to establish his or her role. And then one dog ends up rolling over with their legs up and their belly exposed. That's called capitulation. The Lord wants to bring us to a point of capitulation. Why? Because we need to learn who's in control. We march through life filled with pride, thinking we're the alpha dog, when in reality, God is the alpha dog, if you will, can at least embrace the illustration for the sake of the point, and understand that we are to yield to him. Why wait until the end when we are forced to bend the knee, and why not bend the knee now 
while it is still called today. God's prophecy, the hope that he speaks to us, is not just to encourage us for tomorrow. It's to encourage us for today. Because all of the promises in God, it was read in the reading this morning, in him are yes and in him are amen. God will fulfill his word, always, always, always. Will I put myself in the position to be the recipient of his grace, his love, and his mercy, and of the blessings that he desires to give, which he's already given. Ephesians says he's already lavished them upon us. But sometimes we can quench the spirit and cause the blessings of God to not be flowing freely into and out of our lives because we are hardened and because we aren't yielded. And hope causes us to yield. Hope is not ultimately to make us a self-centered, self-seeking person. Hope is to make us a person who lives with open hands, holding things with a light touch, and saying, God, use me. Here am I. Send me, Lord. And allow God to use our lives for his glory. We are not here for ourselves. Paul said, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Have you reckoned with that? You see, hope reminds us of that. We're not here for ourselves. We belong to him. So as we go through these four weeks of Advent, let the word of God speak to you. Let the hope of Christ minister to you. May your feet be firmly planted upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. And may we move forward as we enter the new year coming up in just a few weeks with faith and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to rule and to reign in your life as the Lord that he truly is, the everlasting God, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. Lord, we love you this morning, and we bless you, and we honor you, and we ask you to be our God as we allow ourselves to be your people. May we allow you to be sovereign and to rule and reign in our lives. Lord, as we sit here this morning, we sit here as people uh, really under conviction, knowing that what you've just spoken to us is true. And so, Lord, may we, in these few moments and as we sing this song to close, yield our lives to you, admit our need for you, and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, as James says, for he will exalt you in due time. And so, Lord, this morning we humble ourselves before you. May the hope of the coming of Christ cause us to yield fully and completely to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's worship the Lord.